Chapter Twenty Seven of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craig. Chapter Twenty Seven. Miss Rothsay was very silent during the walk home. She accounted for it to Crystal by telling the simple truth that in the churchyard she had found the grave of an early and dear friend. Her young companion looked serious, condoled in set fashion and then became absorbed in the hateful labyrinths of the muddy road. Certainly Miss Manners was never born for a simple rustic. Olive could not help remarking this. "'No, I was born for what I am,' answered the girl, proudly. "'My parents were aristocrats. So am I. Don't lecture me. Wrong or right I always felt thus, and always shall. If I have neither friends nor relatives, I have at least my family and my name.' She talked thus, as she did sometimes, until they came to the garden gate of Farnwood Dell. There stood an elegant carriage. Crystal's eyes brightened at the sight, and she trod with a more patrician air. The maid, a parting bequest of Miss Meliora's, and who had long and faithfully served at Woodford Cottage, came anxiously to communicate that there were two ladies waiting. One of them she did not know, the other was Mrs. Fledger. The latter would have disturbed Mrs. Rothsay, Hannah added, but the other lady said no, they would wait, whereat Olive's heart inclined towards the other lady. She went in and found, with Mrs. Fledger, an ancient dame of large and goodly presence. Aged though she seemed, her tall figure was not bent, and dignity is to the old what grace is to the young. She stood a little aside and did not speak. But Olive, laboring under the weight of Mrs. Fledger's gracious inquiries, felt that the old lady's eyes were carefully reading her face. At last Mrs. Fledger made a motion of introduction. "'No, I thank you,' said the stranger, in the unmistakable northern tongue which, falling from poor Elspie's lips, had made the music of Olive's childhood, and to which her heart yearned evermore. "'Miss Rothsay, will you, for your father's sake, let me shake hands with his child?' I am Mrs. Gwynne." Thus it was that Olive received the first greeting of Harold's mother. It startled, overpowered her, she had been so much agitated that day. She was surprised into that rare weakness, a hearty, even childish burst of tears. Mrs. Gwynne came up to her, with a softness almost motherly. "'You are pained, Miss Rothsay, you remember the past, but I have now come to hope that everything may be forgotten, save that I was your father's old friend. For our Scottish friendship, like our pride, descends from generation to generation. Fortune has made us neighbors, let us then be friends. It is my earnest wish, and that of my son, Harold." "'Your son!' echoed Olive. And then, half bewildered by all these adventures, coincidences, and eclaircissements, she told how she had already met him, and how that meeting had shown to her her old companion's grave. "'That is strange, too. Never while she lived did Mrs. Harold Gwynne mention your name, and you loved her so. Well, twas like her. Like her, muttered Harold's mother, but peace be with the dead. She walked up and laid her hand on Olive's shoulder. My dear, I am an old woman. Excuse my speaking plainly. You know nothing of me and of my son, save what is harsh and painful. Forget all this, and remember only that I loved your father when he was quite a child and that I am prepared to love his daughter if she so choose. You must not think I am taking a hasty fancy, we Scottish folk rarely do that, but I have learnt much about you lately, more than you guess, 
and have recognized in you the little Olive of whom Angus Rothsay told me so much only a few days before his death. "'Did you see my dear father, then? Did he talk of me?' cried Olive eagerly, as, forgetting all the painful remembrances attached to the Gwynne family, she began to look at Harold's mother almost with affection. But Mrs. Gwynne, who had unfolded herself in a way most unusual, now was relapsing into reserve. "'We will talk of this another time, my dear. Now I should much desire to see Mrs. Rothsay.' Olive went to fetch her. How she contrived to explain all that had transpired she never clearly knew herself. However, she succeeded, and shortly reappeared with her mother leaning on her arm. And, beholding the pale, worn, but still graceful woman, who, with her sightless eyes cast down, clung to her sole stay, her devoted child, Mrs. Gwynne seemed deeply moved. There was even a sort of deprecatory hesitation in her manner, but it soon passed. She clasped the widow's hands, and spoke to her in a voice so sweet, so winning, that all pain vanished from Mrs. Rothsay's mind. In a little while she was sitting calmly by Mrs. Gwynne's side, listening to her talking. It went into the blind woman's heart. Soft the voice was and kind, and above all there were in it the remembered, long unheard accents of the northern tongue. She felt again like young Sibylla Hyde, creeping along in the moonlight by the side of her stalwart highland lover, listening to his whispers, and thinking that there was in the wide world no one like her own Angus Rothsay, so beautiful and so brave. When Mrs. Gwynne quitted the dell, she left on the hearts of both mother and daughter a pleasure which they sought not to repress. They were quite glad that the next day was Sunday, when they would go to Harbury, and hear Harold Gwynne preach. Olive told her mother all that had passed in the churchyard, and they agreed that he must be a very peculiar, though a very clever man. As for Crystal, she had gone off with her friend, Mrs. Fledger, and did not interfere in the conversation at all. When Sunday morning came, Mrs. Rothsay's feeble strength was found unequal to a walk of two miles. Crystal, apparently not sorry for the excuse, volunteered to remain with her, and Olive went to church alone. She was loath to leave her mother, but then she did so long to hear Mr. Gwynne preach. She thought, all the way, what kind of minister he would make. Not at all like any other, she was quite sure. She entered the grey, still village church, and knelt down to pray in a retired corner pew. There was a great quietness over her, a repose like that of the morning before sunrise. She felt a meek happiness, a hopeful looking forth into life, and yet a touch would have awakened the fountain of tears. She saw Mrs. Gwynne walk up the aisle alone, with her firm, stately step, and then the service began. Olive glanced one instant at the officiating minister. It was the same stern face that she had seen by Sarah's grave, nay, perhaps even more stern. Nor did she like his reading, for there was in it the same iron coldness. He repeated the touching liturgy of the English church with the tone of a judge delivering sentence, an orator pronouncing his well-written formal harangue. Olive had to shut her ears before she herself could heartily pray. This pained her. There was something so noble in Mr. Gwynne's face, so musical in his voice, that any shortcoming gave her a sense of disappointment. She felt troubled to think that he was the clergyman of the parish, and she must necessarily hear him every Sunday. Harold Gwynne mounted his pulpit, and Olive listened intently. From what she had heard of him as a highly intellectual man, from the faint indications of character which she had herself noticed in their conversation, 
Miss Rothsay expected that he would have dived deeply into theological disquisition. She had too much penetration to look to him for the Christianity of a St. John. It was evident that such was not his nature. But she thought he would surely employ his powerful mind in wrestling with those knotty points of theology which might furnish arguments for a modern St. Paul. But Harold Gwynne did neither. His sermon was a plain moral discourse, an essay such as Locke or Bacon might have written, save that he took care to translate it into language suitable to his hearers, the generality of whom were of the laboring class. Olive liked him for this, believing she recognized therein the strong sense of duty, the wish to do good, which overpowered all desire of intellectual display. And when she had once succeeded in ignoring the fact that his sermon was of a character more suited to the professor's chair than the pulpit, she listened with deep interest to his teaching of a lofty but somewhat stern morality. Yet, despite his strong, clear arguments and his evident earnestness, there was about him a repellent atmosphere which prevented her inclining towards the man, even while she was constrained to respect the intellect of the preacher. Nevertheless, when Mr. Gwynne ended his brief discourse with the usual prayer, that it might be grafted inwardly in his hearers' minds, it sounded very like a mockery, at least to Olive, who for the moment had almost forgotten that she was in a church. During the silent pause of the kneeling congregation, she raised her eyes and looked at the minister. He too knelt like the rest, with covered face, but his hands were not folded in prayer. They were clenched like those of a man writhing under some strong and secret agony, and when he lifted his head, his rigid features were more rigid than ever. The organ awoke, pealing forth Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, and still the pastor sat motionless in his pulpit, his stern face showing white in the sunshine. The heavenly music rolled round him its angelic waves, they never touched his soul. Beneath, his simple congregation passed out, exchanging with one another demure Sunday greetings and kindly Sunday smiles. He saw them not. He sat alone, like one who has no sympathy either with heaven or earth. But there watched him from the hidden corner eyes he knew not of, the wondering, half-pitying eyes of Olive Rothsay. And while she gazed, there came into her heart, involuntarily, as if whispered by an unseen angel at her side, the words from the litany, words which he himself had coldly read an hour before. That it may please thee to lead into the way of truth all such as have erred and are deceived. We beseech thee to hear us, O Lord. Scarcely conscious was she why she thus felt, or for whom she prayed, but years after it seemed to her that there had been a solemn import in these words. Miss Rothsay was late in quitting the church. As she did so, she felt her arm lightly touched, and saw beside her Mrs. Gwynne. "'My dear, I am glad to meet you. We scarcely expected to have seen you at church today. Alone, too. Then you must come with me to the parsonage to lunch. You say nay? What, are we still so far enemies that you refuse our bread and salt?' Olive colored with sensitive fear lest she might have given pain. Besides, she felt a strong attraction towards Mrs. Gwynne, a sense of looking up, such as she had never before experienced towards any woman. For, it is needless to say, Olive's affection for her mother was the passionate, protecting tenderness of a nurse for a beloved charge, nay, even of a lover towards an idolized mistress, but there was nothing of reverential awe in it at all. Now Mrs. Gwynne carried with her dignity, influence, command. 
Olive, almost against her will, found herself passing down the green alley that led to the parsonage. As she walked along, her slight small figure pressed close to her companion, who had taken her under her arm, she felt almost like a child beside Harold's mother. At the door sat little Eily, amusing herself with a great dog. She looked restless and wearied, as a child does, kept in the house under the restrictions of Sunday play. At the sight of her grandmother, the little girl seemed half pleased, half frightened, and tried to calm Rover's frolics within the bounds of sabbatic propriety. This being impossible, Mrs. Gwynne's severe voice ordered both the offenders away in different directions. Then she apologized to Miss Rothsay. "'Perhaps,' she continued, "'you are surprised that Eily was not with me this morning. But such is her father's will. My son Harold is peculiar in his opinions, and has a great hatred of Kant, especially infantile Kant. And does Eily never go to church? No, but I take care that she keeps Sunday properly and reverently at home. I remove her playthings and her baby books, and teach her a few of Dr. Watt's moral hymns." Olive sighed. She felt that this was not the way to teach the faith of him who smiled with benign tenderness on the little child, set in the midst and it grieved her to think what a wide gulf there was between the untaught Eily and that sincere but stern pity over which had gathered the formality of advancing years. Mrs. Gwynne and her guest had sat talking for some minutes when Harold was seen crossing the lawn. His mother called him, and he came to the window with the quick response of one who in all his life had never heard that summons unheeded. It was a slight thing, but Olive noticed it and the loving daughter felt more kindly towards the duteous son. "'Harold, Miss Rothsay is here.' He glanced in at the open window with a surprised, half-confused air, which was not remarkable, considering the awkwardness of this second meeting after their first rencounter. Remembering it, Olive heard his steps down the long hall with some trepidation. But entering, he walked up to her with graceful ease, took her hand, and expressed his pleasure in meeting her. He did not make the slightest allusion either to their former correspondence or to their late conversation in the churchyard. Olive's sudden color paled beneath his unconcerned air. Her faintly quickened pulses sank into quietness. It seemed childish to have been so nervously sensitive in meeting Harold Gwynne. She felt thoroughly ashamed of herself, and was afraid lest her shyness might have conveyed to him and to his mother the impression, which she would not for worlds have given, that she bore any painful or uncharitable remembrance of the past. Soon the conversation glided naturally into ease and pleasantness. Mrs. Gwynne had the gift of talking well, a rare quality among women, whose conversation mostly consists of disjointed chatter, long-winded repetitions, or a commonplace remark, and silence but Alice and Gwynne had none of these feminine peculiarities. To listen to her was like reading a pleasant book. Her terse, well-chosen sentences had all the grace of easy chat, and yet were so unaffected that not until you paused to think them over did you discover that you might have put them all down in a book, and made an excellent book, too. Her son had not this gift, or if he had he left it unemployed. It was a great moment that could draw more than ordinary words from the lips of Harold Gwynne, and such moments seemed to have been rare indeed with him. Generally he appeared, as he did now to Olive Rothsay, the dignified but rather silent master of the household, in whose most winning grace there was reserve, and whose very courtesy implied command. He showed this when, after an hour's pleasant visit, Miss Rothsay moved to depart. Harold requested her to remain a few minutes longer. 
I have occasion to go to the hall before evening service, and I shall be happy to accompany you on the way, if you do not object to my escort. If Olive had been quite free, probably she would have answered that she did, for her independent habits made her greatly enjoy a long quiet walk alone, especially through a beautiful country. She almost felt that the company of her redoubtable pastor would be a restraint. But in all that Harold Gwynne did or said there lurked an inexplicable sway, to which everyone seemed to bend. Almost against her will she remained, and in a few minutes was walking beside him to the little wicket-gate. Here they were interrupted by someone on clerical business. Mr. Gwynne desired her to proceed. He would overtake her ere she had descended the hill. Thither Olive went, half hoping that she might after all take her walk alone. But very soon she heard behind her footsteps, quick, firm, manly, less seeming to tread than to crush the ground. Such footsteps give one a feeling of being haunted, as they did to Olive. It was a relief when they came up with her, and she was once more joined by Harold Gwynne. "'You are exact in keeping your word,' observed Miss Rothsay, by way of saying something. "'Yes, always. When I say I will, it is generally done. The road is uneven and rough. Will my arm aid you, Miss Rothsay?' She accepted it, perhaps the more readily because it was offered less as a courtesy than a support, and one not unneeded, for Olive was rather tired with her morning's exertions and with the excitement of talking to strangers. As she walked, there came across her mind the thought, what a new thing it was for her to have a strong, kindly arm to lean on. But it seemed rather pleasant than otherwise, and she felt gratefully towards Mr. Gwynne. They conversed on the ordinary topics, natural to such a recent acquaintance, the beauty of the country around, the peculiarities of forest scenery, etc., etc. Never once did Harold's conversation assimilate to that which had so struck Olive when they stood beside poor Sarah's grave. It seemed as though the former Harold Gwynne, the object of her girlhood's dislike, her father's enemy, her friend's husband, had vanished for ever, and in his stead was a man whose strong individuality of character already interested her. He was unlike all other men she had ever known. This fact, together with the slight mystery that hung over him, attracted the lingering romance of Olive's nature, and made her observe his manner and his words with a vigilant curiosity, as if to seek some new revelation of humanity in his character or his history. Therefore, every little incident of conversation in that first walk was carefully put by in her hidden nooks of memory to amuse her mother with and perhaps also to speculate thereupon herself. They reached Farnwood Dell, and Olive's conscience began to accuse her of having left her mother for so many hours. Therefore her adieu and thanks to Mr. Gwynne were somewhat abrupt. Mechanically she invited him in, and, to her surprise, he entered. Mrs. Rothsay was sitting out of doors in her garden chair. A beautiful picture she made, leaning back with a mild sweetness, scarce a smile hovering on her lips. Her pale little hands were folded on her black dress, her soft braids of hair, already silver-gray, and her complexion, lovely as that of a young girl, showing delicately in contrast with her crimson gardenhood the triumph of her daughter's skillful fingers. Olive crossed the grass with a quick and noiseless step, Harold following. "'Mamma, darling!' A light, bright as a sunburst, shone over Mrs. Rothsay's face. "'My child, how long you have been away!' Did Mrs. Gwynne—' "'Hush, darling,' in a whisper. "'I have been at the parsonage, and Mr. Gwynne has kindly brought me home. He is here now.' 
Harold stood at a distance and bowed. Olive came to him, saying in a low tone, "'Take her hand. She cannot see you. She is blind.' He started with surprise. "'I did not know. My mother told me nothing.' And then, advancing to Mrs. Rothsay, he pressed her hand in both his, with such an air of reverent tenderness and gentle compassion, that it made his face grow softened, beautiful, divine. Olive Rothsay, turning, beheld that look. It never afterwards faded from her memory. Mrs. Rothsay arose, and said in her own sweet manner, "'I am happy to meet Mr. Gwynne, and to thank him for taking care of my child.' They talked for a few minutes, and then Olive persuaded her mother to return to the house. "'You will come, Mr. Gwynne,' said Mrs. Rothsay. He answered, hesitating, that the afternoon would close soon, and he must go on to Farnwood Hall. Mrs. Rothsay rose from her chair, with the touching, helpless movement of one who is blind. "'Permit me,' said Harold Gwynne, as, stepping quickly forward, he drew her arm through his, arranging her shawl with a care like a woman's. And so he led her into the house, with a tenderness beautiful to see. Olive, as she followed silently after, felt her whole heart melted towards him. She never forgot Harold's first meeting with, and his kindness to, her mother. He went away, promising to pay another visit soon. "'I am quite charmed with Mr. Gwynne,' said Mrs. Rothsay. "'Tell me, Olive, what he is like.' Olive described him, though not enthusiastically at all. Nevertheless, her mother answered, smiling, "'He must indeed be a remarkable person. He is such a perfect gentleman, and his voice is so kind and pleasant. Like his mother, too, he has a little of the sweet Scottish tongue. Truly I did not think there had been in the world such a man as Harold Gwynne.' "'Nor I,' answered Olive, in a soft, quiet, happy voice. She hung over her mother with a deeper tenderness. She looked out into the lovely autumn sunset with a keener sense of beauty and of joy. The sun was setting, the year was waning, but on Olive Rothsay's life had risen a new season and a new day. End of chapter 27